Welcome to the Steps Uncertainty Podcast, a four-part series of conversations recorded at the Steps Centre's Politics of Uncertainty Symposium in July 2019. Uncertainty is all around us, but the full depth and breadth of challenges presented by the unknown are rarely fully acknowledged and virtually never embraced. So what kind of methods, behaviours, strategies and responses are needed to deal with different kinds of uncertainty? In this conversation, we'll hear about uncertainty in the areas of insurance, finance and banking, and governance. The panel are Leon Vansleben, head of the research group on the sociology of public finances and debt at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne. Lee Johnson, assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Oregon. And Bernardo Rangoni, postdoctoral fellow in law at the European University Institute. The chair is Ian Schoons of the Steps Centre. So we've been having an intensive couple of days thinking about uncertainty, and I wanted to ask each of you um, in turn what uncertainty means in the field that you work. So perhaps first, Leon, you could give us a, a reflection on what uncertainty means in finance and banking in the type of work yeah. that you've been doing. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, these were really very inspiring days and I think made me think in new ways about it. What was really useful for me was that in the final plenary, somebody organized a little bit how we could think about the concept of uncertainty by distinguishing existential uncertainty, kind of uncertainty as a human condition, if you like, from interactive uncertainty to what he then said was political uncertainty, but I would say like more a systemic level of uncertainty. And to, to apply it to, to the world of, of finance, what is so interesting is that the, the interesting elements of uncertainty come in at the second level and the third. So just imagine people trading on a market and uh, one person is buying uh, an equity, a share of a company and the other one is selling it. And this means they must have different expectations about the value of that share because one person expects that share to be less worth in the future, the other one more. So there is an inherent element of uncertainty in how these markets work because there needs to be disagreement about value for these markets to work in the first place because ultimately they are uh, negotiations, uh, struggles, uh, I mean, not, not physical, but uh, cognitive uh, and symbolic struggles over value. And so that's an important element of uncertainty. But then there's also this systemic level, which I think for finance is also very important. Think of crises. And usually these are events when the uncertainty is for the system as a whole. Think of situations when everybody wants to sell because, because they don't know whether this contract, because financial securities ultimately contracts, are worth anything in the future or whether money is actually worth anything in the future. So that would be the kind of systemic element of uncertainty that's also quite interesting with finance. Very interesting. And, and Lee, presumably this plays over into the insurance uh, setting where, of course, insurance companies must make money out of uncertainty in some way or other. Absolutely. So the sort of 
cynical social science approach to thinking about uncertainty and insurance. Uh, we've seen articulated from various corners of the conference. And then what's been interesting to me is the very pragmatic uh, approach and and um, the meeting of those two <laughs> views. And that is the, the cynical approach as well, insurers, um, capitalize on their market position to exploit uncertainty and extract rents. Uh, and then there's quite a pragmatic approach, which is, well, insurers, because of their market position, control pools of capital that are somehow required because of the nature of time and indeterminacy in a capitalist economy, um, those are required. And so certainly that's the reason for the existence of insurance, but that's not the only way to do insurance. Uh, and even in the non-rent extractive models, we still have some kind of pooling mechanism that helps us um, cushion and allocate capital after the fact for events. Uh, so that kind of forward-looking cushion is, is going to continue to be necessary in all sorts of domains uh, of social, political, and economic life. So uh, what's been really interesting to me is the crossovers beyond economics and finance uh, into the political domains of um, the ways that insurance might be used to finance humanitarian relief. Uh, so not necessarily formal insurance structures as we know them at the moment, but the ways that they are evolving uh, as we speak. Yeah, it seems like a massively fast-moving area, which uh, I've learned a lot about. Bernardo, you've been working particularly on electricity systems and markets in the European context. Mm -hmm. Big uncertainties in those settings. Mm -hmm. what, sort of, what sort of issues have you encountered in your work? Well, so I, I work uh, on uh, regulation, so essentially I look at the processes to make rules in order to promote competition and, and create an internal market in the European Union. And so we can see that these processes uh, present variations depending on the level of uncertainty that the policymakers and stakeholders uh, face. So, for example, in, if we compare um, the regulation of network access in gas and in electricity, we see that in gas the European Commission was quite uh, certain, was quite confident about what it wanted to do and how to achieve it. And so it went for a more conventional hierarchical model of decision making, less, less inclusive, uh, faster. Uh, and when when rules were uh, were defined, then the focus was on compliance uh, monitoring. Whereas in electricity, we saw something different because there was much more uncertainty. So nobody really knew how to arrive to an integrated electricity market, and so we saw a sequence of uh, of experiments. So different approaches were allowed across different regions, macro regions, and then they were compared and debated. And at some point, this was, was leading to the identification of best practices, which were codified in rules. But we also saw electricity is also quite interesting because 
it, it, it is one case in which we see reemergences of, uh, of uncertainty. Um, so we don't, we don't. I wouldn't say that uh, that solutions are are there, and uh, now we 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 got them, and uh, we can uh, you know we can uh, sleep in peace because this is not. Uh, I mean, renewables is the big is the is really the big example. Is put is uh, creating a host of new challenges, uh, and, and and this raises really a lot of questions that. Nobody really knows how to, uh, how to address, and they are all interconnected. So uncertainties never go away, they just mm. recreate themselves mm. in, in new forms. I would, um, I would say so, yeah. And I think that was the case in, in insurance and in, in finance markets, which raises this bigger question about, as it were, who's responsible for the management or the control of, uh, of uncertainty? What's, what are the processes of governance that exist? What's the wider political economy around mm. uncertainty? Mm that appropriates responsibility and blame and so on. Um, and I know that was one of the themes that came out of our discussions across these themes. And I wonder whether you have, perhaps first Leon, any reflections on as it were, the politics of yeah. responsibility? Yeah, so I think the interesting observation that I can contribute here comes from, uh, from a book of a colleague on the history of the British banking system, which until the end of the 19th century was based on banks that were partnerships, which meant that the, those running these banks, they had unlimited liabilities, which meant essentially these were people with big estates uh, because you needed quite some assets to prove that you could potentially repay your, your creditors, the people who having bank accounts with you in, in the case of a crisis or whatever. And, and then came, um, stock, then banks turned into stock companies, which had various reasons, mainly to do with size, industrial development, and so forth. And uh, what, what this essentially also meant, this was in parallel with the rise of limited liability uh, law. Essentially, what it meant is that a, a new division of labor emerged. Um, so I guess we think of the emergence of the welfare state uh, often as a kind of progressive achievement, and in many ways it is, but it also implies a particular kind of division of labor, at least in the north, mm -hmm. between corporations and the state, where uh, the corporations can specify their responsibilities in particular terms towards shareholders in, in legal terms, uh, and um, there's institutions, if you think about the financial system, central banks, that are the... Um, the bearers of uncertainties of last resort and the costs and so forth. And, and I mean, the system was unfair and, and unequitable in, in, in many ways, but at least you have a, for that, for that kind of period, then I kind of, if you, I primarily refer to the after war, second world war period, you have a more or less a stabilization of these elements, you know, the corp, the corporations taking some, share of the responsibility as far as it also concerns their profits and states uh, addressing the negative externalities. And I think we are now in a period where it seems in, on many levels that this division of labor doesn't really yeah. work anymore, which has to do with globalization, with, uh, um, with the weakness of states and, 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 and various uh, developments in the corporate world with multinational corporations that cannot be embedded anymore in these uh, old forms. Right, and hence in the crash one had exactly. states, states having to come in on behalf of banks yeah. which weren't, weren't able to hold the, exactly. hold the risk and ultimately people in these countries having to pay for it. Yeah, 
Um, but insurance, I've always seen, sits in a different place. Um, and you work mostly in, in the so-called developing world, in the global south, where, of course, the responsibilities between north and south become a political question. Right, exactly. And what I'm struck by is, you know, in the north we have this dissolution of the welfare state or various forms of welfare states. Uh, and in the South, where canonically speaking, don't have um, a welfare state model that is then dismantled, um, what we do see in the past decade or so is a turn towards trying to use insurance tools um, for as a, a way for donors to force a certain kind of accountability and transparency for uh, government spending on social protection. Uh, so I work in Kenya and there um, one of the very fascinating developments is the growth of um, livestock and agricultural insurance programs that are uh, funded, the premiums are funded by government of Kenya. Uh, and it, in fact, I should note, it's not donor money that's funding those premiums, that's government of Kenya money. And that's a really interesting dynamic that's taking place um, in other countries as well, where because of innovations in the design of insurance products, so this turn towards forms of parametric or index-based insurance that aren't using um, actual field-based measurement of a loss, but rather an environmental proxy or, or some kind of modeled approximation of what losses may be, um, they're able to extend these tools as forms of uh, a sensible social protection. Right. Um, and there, um, when we're talking about the politics or the, the political economy of responsibility, uh, it's quite interesting because on the one hand, there's an effort to um, socialize more of these risks that have historically been borne by households or shared amongst uh, informal kin and clan networks and so on. Um, and at the same time, the use of the index or uh, the parametric insurance product generates a whole host of uncertainties right. itself. And that's what we call basis risk. So the discrepancy between what the model or the proxy indicates the loss to have been and what people on the ground actually experienced. And yeah. so we've spent a lot of time talking about the different states of uncertainty that that generates for people who are um, believing they have cover right. uh, and then don't receive cover. So there's a whole distributional question in there about who, who takes that risk, who pays for the product and, and what the outcomes are. Exactly. So Bernardo, um, finally, I mean, the politics of responsibility within mm. the in, in an increasingly privatized electricity market. Mm. What sort of issues do you find around governance? Mm. So I mean, on this, I would like to say a couple of things, but actually not not using energy as an example, but uh, in one case finance, in another one is just a general point. Uh, so looking at finance and so on, what I wanted to say here is that uh, uh, the politics of blame or blame shifting 
it's, all, it's also affected by the complexity of the situation because, uh, for example, in the Eurozone crisis, everybody knew that at the end of the day, uh, the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, were the ones you know in control or or to blame if thing, the thing were, was going out of control. Uh, whereas if we think about the Troika and all the thing, things which happened to Greece, you know, the Troika was the IMF, the European Commission and the ECB. So, so what I'm saying here is simply that the multiplicity of actors may make it uh, more difficult to, to shift blame or concentrate blame on some and, and the other way and the other way around. Right. Of course. Then the other, the other point I wanted to make very quickly is that uh, I'm very happy that in the symposium uh, it really came out the political economy or the politics behind uncertainty because normally we think uh, of uncertainty as a cognitive uh, issue, uh, whereas here most of the participants they were really stressing that it's not only about cognitive, uh, uh, it's not only about the cognitive dimension. Uh, what, uh, so what I mean here is really that when things are settled, when we have uh, defined rules and we are confident about them and so on, there is a kind of stasis, right? I mean, there is a status quo. But when there is uncertainty, this opens up. Uh, the door for possibility. It creates possibilities of action. And that's where interested actors move. Because, of course, if then uh, the next um, uh, round of legislation goes in one direction rather than in another one, this will benefit somebody and will, and, uh, and somebody else will lose. Absolutely. And that, that, that dynamism that one sees in the political contestation around uncertainty, mm. I mean, it's interesting to hear it from, from a European perspective. Mm. Those of us who work in, in, in Africa or Asia or so, see it all the time. Mm. But actually, it's a universal phenomenon. Mm. And, and complex markets, complex uh, commercial products, finance systems, and an increasingly financialized, globalized world create that complexity that that means that's the norm mm. and so I think that's one of the themes that's come out for me yeah. that actually we're not dealing with the unusual mm. this is this is this is life as we know it and will continue to be mm. so thank you for your contribution thank, thank you. you thank you yeah. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For the other episodes in this series and more resources on uncertainty, visit steps-center.org slash uncertainty.